Welcome to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. I am Matilda Yared, and I'm a Director in Global Securities Finance at National Bank of Canada and an engaged member of Women in Securities Finance. I will be your host for today's podcast. Today, we will be discussing emotional intelligence in the context of our professional development and career advancement. I am pleased to have with me two experts on the topic, Alicia Del Rio and Bob Bigelin from the Center for Advanced Emotional Intelligence. Welcome, Alicia and Bob. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you. So first topic for us today, what can you tell us about the role emotional intelligence plays in someone's career development and advancement? Specifically, can you speak to us about the relative importance of EQ versus IQ? Sure. We like to think about it as the relative contribution of EQ and IQ to someone's career success over the course of their career. And if we think about it in the context of what you do, Matilda, and your community, IQ clearly has a very, very important role. It's a cognitively demanding type of work that you do, and clearly there's a very high minimum threshold for that work. And so earlier in your career, a lot of your success really is dependent on your ability to master the technical or functional aspects of your role. So really more of a bias towards IQ. And whilst EQ certainly plays a role in helping you be successful in the early stages of career, really in your ability to work in a team environment, it's not as prominent as it becomes as you advance through your career and later in your professional life. So what happens then is typically you're moving into positions of greater responsibility, greater complexity, and it starts to play a much more important role. One way, which is the real direct way, is as you move into positions of managing teams or teams of teams, and EQ there actually becomes absolutely essential to your success in these roles. But even if you're a senior level individual contributor, you're typically dealing with a wider variety of people on some of the organization's toughest challenges. So EQ is critical there as well, even though you may not be directly leading the team. And and why is this the case? Well, one reason is that you're very, very focused on relationships. And so let's look at a couple of different aspects of that. Let's actually start with something that's important at the individual level, which is dealing with stressful situations, ambiguity, right? So as you move into roles with greater responsibility, scope, and complexity, they are by their nature potentially more stressful. So really being aware of your own emotions, and that's one of the foundational principles of emotional intelligence is actual emotional self-awareness and being able to skillfully manage them in response to stress really becomes foundational at that point. If you're leading a team or multiple teams, as we've been saying, it's critically important to managing your relationships with others and building and sustaining productive relationships. So one of the other important aspects of EQ is that you're able to recognize emotions in others and you're able to use that information to skillfully manage and sustain and improve your relationships. Organizational awareness is another one. We sometimes call this social knowledge. We had a professor who used to like to say, if you put two people together in an empty room, There are politics, there are social dynamics. And if you think about the types of organizations you work in, they're really socially complex. And everything from politics and power dynamics and social dynamics, they're always gonna be present there. And EQ really helps you stay aware of those dynamics and use this awareness to be able to successfully navigate through the myriad of relationships that extend beyond your immediate team. And particularly in the area of knowledge work, One thing that I think is critically important and people always don't make the connection with is that when you're living in a period of time right now where change is really continuous, 
that knowledge actually seems to have some expiration dates, certainly very highly technical knowledge. One of the best strategies for adapting and thriving is through active learning. And learning is not only cognitively demanding, but it's emotionally demanding, right? It creates uncertainty. It often challenges some either deeply held assumptions or potentially we're having to learn skills that are new to us, but it really helps us improve our ability to learn and adapt. Alicia, what would you add to that? The only thing I would add is just that component for women. So there are some specific habits that women can fall into around career development that can limit our advancement. So there's research from Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith that shows that sometimes we can fall into this trap of focusing on our current job at the expense of our broader career. So we think if we just keep our head down, if we're working hard to deliver results, we're going to be recognized for our contributions and our successes. But what we often don't recognize is that that distracts attention from seeing our current role in the context of our broader career. And so that self-knowledge that Bob was talking about, that reflection, that can help women who find themselves in this situation to step back and think about our long-term aspirations and see how they might fit into the broader context of our career, not just doing well in our current job. So it's such an important piece of emotional intelligence is that self-knowledge, that reflection that allows us to actively manage our career. Can I add one thing to that, Matilda? Yes. One of the things that I think, and let's bring this back around to some of those core tenets of emotional intelligence we talked about. And we keep talking about this idea of being aware of yourself, self-awareness, reflection, being able to talk about your emotions. One of the things that's really important is that we find that some clients haven't really re-examined themselves and their personal story, even though they've grown and their circumstances have evolved. So one of the things to recognize that's very important is just as you change and evolve as a person in response to all the changes in your circumstances and surroundings, your self-concept has to change as well. And being aware of that, and one of the ways that you can become aware of that is when you start to feel a real disconnect in your emotional response to the things that are happening around you and how people view you, how your interactions and relationships are changing. And you might still have yourself mentally anchored in a past version of yourself as opposed to the present version you're in. And we've seen this happen, especially when people have moved into positions of significantly higher leadership authority. So someone now becomes a functional leader, whereas before they were a team leader. That's very interesting. To follow up a little bit on that and on some topics that you touch upon, self-knowledge, self-concept, disconnect and emotional response, this has to do with the self. But what about the aspect of picking up on cues of those who are around us or what you could call reading the room and responding to these cues properly is one thing, but picking up on them has to occur in the first place. How can that aspect be learned? Well, I think part of it is, first of all, recognizing that an important part of developing your emotional intelligence absolutely is grounded in your ability to recognize what's happening with others. So as we talked about before, we were saying that one of the things that's important is as you move into positions where you're either managing teams directly or working on more diverse teams, it's really important to start to recognize what's happening. And you'll notice that some people may more naturally be observers in the room. And we found this at the risk of oversimplifying. Sometimes you will find introverts who are people who are more introverted, 
who have a more natural tendency to be observers and will watch and maybe more astutely observing the dynamics of a room. And we've worked with clients who have very strong tendencies towards extroversion. And one of the things we will have to work with them on is just pause for a moment. Don't be the first person to speak. And in particular, if you're a leader of a team, we often encourage people to stop and to tell yourself, I'm not gonna say anything until everyone else has a chance to speak, but I'm gonna try to focus and watch what's happening in the room. And for some of those leaders, it's a revelation when they actually stop for a moment and take the time to pause and look at the social dynamics. Thank you, Bob. That's actually very interesting. So to me, there's two aspects to your response. So there's the physical one of stopping and watching and looking at the physical reactions of those around us, whatever message is being circulated. There's also the pausing and actually doing active listening. So the reality for a lot of people right now is working remotely. We do not have the luxury anymore of being in the same room as our colleagues or as our partner in other business units or business lines. How can we improve our experience while working from home? How can we avoid some of the pitfalls of not having access to these physical cues that allow us to read the room better and tailor our response to? Yeah, that's a great question, Matilda. And we would say we're now about nine months into a huge adaptation experiment around remote work. And there's been a lot to learn from the experience for both individuals and organizations. And I find it especially interesting. There was just recently a large study of knowledge workers, multiple countries, And what it showed is there's actually been improvements in employee satisfaction and engagement across the board. However, one of the largest areas of dissatisfaction for employees working remotely, it's that sense of belonging, that sense of connectedness that people experience when they're physically together. So that's a real challenge for organizations and for individuals and for team leaders. And what that means is that we need to be more intentional about developing practices that help us sustain our connections. The great part of that is if you can focus on how to improve your team working in a remote setting, it's going to have a sustained impact when you do return back to the office. These aren't complicated things, but they do require that intentional focus, which means you might have to press pause and reflect on everyone's experience over the past few months. So pause and reflect on what practices have you and your colleagues found to be most effective? What practices from the pre-pandemic era are no longer relevant? What might be holding you back? One of the biggest challenges we've seen with our clients is that they haven't stopped to ask those very simple questions. We're just moving forward, trying to do the same thing that worked for us before. And the reality is that the lift and shift doesn't always work from being in a physical location together to being virtually. So it's not complicated, but it does require that intentionality, that thought, and that commitment. So what we've seen be successful, first and foremost, is that start by reflecting on reaffirming your team norms. So talk to your team. Create a short list of practices or behaviors that fall into two categories. And we like to make it really simple. It's okay to on one side of the list, and we try to avoid on the other side. And it's a dialogue that you have with your team. So a simple example of that, one client said, it's okay to turn off your camera if you've had a long day of video meetings or if it's a bit chaotic at home. 
just let everyone in the call know when we start that you're going to be off video. On the other hand, they also said, we try to avoid being off camera for our weekly team meetings since it's the one time that week that we know we'll all be together. So there's a whole host of things that can fall under these categories. It can include when to ask for help, when to check in with colleagues, paying attention to everyone's emotional state. There's so much to work with here. So creating, revisiting your team norms and formalizing them, so important to improve the effectiveness of our virtual work. Some other practices that we've seen adopted that have improved how their teams function remotely, rethinking your meeting cadence, right? What made sense before may not make sense today, and it likely needs to continue to evolve. Another place that we see clients really struggling right now, because we're, we're so busy, we're all plugged in all the time, we're missing that dedicated time for deep work. And if that's something your team needs, Carving out that time for deep work, for uninterrupted work. One of our clients has a no meeting morning one day a week where everyone is focused on digging into the complex projects they're working on. It's been really effective for them. Another, delegating leadership to other members of your team. So let some of the earlier career team members facilitate your team meeting. It takes a little work off your plate and it provides them with a development opportunity. It keeps things fresh, keeps things interesting. And then I would also just add that regularly revisiting your team practices, continue to adjust, continue to adapt, schedule time, schedule additional check-ins with your team to revisit all of these items on the list, to revisit team norms, to revisit your team meetings, your cadence, your delegation, all of that. And I would just also add that while everything here I just talked about is at the work level, do this at home as well, right? Because not only has our work environment changed, but our home life has changed. And a lot of these things need to be reevaluated at home as well. So make sure you're pressing pause and you're reflecting on your household, on your family functions as well. So those habits and patterns that we've just been following make a conscious effort to change and to adjust them based on what's happening now, not what's worked in the past. Thank you, Alicia. Maybe we can go further on one aspect. I know that in many cases, there were spur of the moment conversations that would take place at the office simply because we were all in the same space. Now, in a remote working environment, this spontaneous aspect to our communication simply doesn't exist anymore. We have to schedule a meeting. We have to decide if the topic or the thought is worth a phone call. What can you suggest to basically regain some of the advantages that came from these spontaneous conversations on work-related topics? I think the, the lack of spontaneity or the what I would sometimes call those serendipitous moments where you happen to run into somebody, they're challenging for many, many teams because you're lacking a couple of things. You're lacking not just the physical sort of we bumped into each other, but also all of the nonverbal communications that's taking place between people as that happens. And there is not necessarily a silver bullet around that. And so Again, one of the things that we've been counseling clients on is that you probably have to spend time being more intentional 
and just creating some of those moments. And there's a real tension here and it's come out in a lot of ways. We've heard about groups putting together, well, we're going to change our Friday morning team meeting to Friday morning coffee half hour or coffee chat. And even though it's a team meeting still coming together, this one particular leader said, I actually want to change the way that we do this. So take your laptop, go find your favorite easy chair and sit there. And we'll at least try to change our own surroundings where we're sitting in our own houses remotely as a way to try to recreate that. But it's a really difficult challenge. There's not a single easy answer to it other than to really just remember that And this is especially the case for someone who is leading a team that it's just really important to have to be more disciplined and structured around how you're creating those opportunities because in the past you didn't have to. And in many ways, it's a luxury. I think when we get back into the office, we're going to so appreciate the fact that all of those moments of bumping into each other in the hall or in the lobby or running out to lunch together, whatever it might have been, and just how important they are. And I think we're really coming to recognize how valuable they really were to not just how we felt personally about the people we work with, but actually how important they were to the work that we really do. I would just add too. So we've heard this from clients that, for example, one of our clients recently had a baby and she's like, I never get to show anyone my baby pictures. (laughs) And, you know, like I would get to do in the hallway conversations or at the coffee station in the office. So how can you create that space for folks that have had life events and carve it out? Another thing we recommend is a check-in question at the beginning of a call. So at the beginning of a meeting, something simple, you know, a check-in question around what series are you watching on TV? What have you read recently that you've really enjoyed? Just something to bring that spontaneity into the room and share a common experience, get everyone's voice heard in the meeting can be a benefit. And, you know, Matilda, just on that example of that client who had had the baby, just to give you a sense of how pervasive this challenge is, she's a member of the C-suite. And what she realized by that, and this is really instructive, she said, while I was in maternity leave, I realized we had hired 15 or 20 people into the organization. And she said, and if I came back, having been someone who I knew all of these colleagues, and I was just sort of parachuted back in as if my life was put on pause, and then somebody hit the play button again, and I'm back in as if nothing happened. Imagine how difficult that is for the people who joined this team over that period of time. And what it actually led to is a really deep discussion about how they need to rework all of their onboarding. And so that's a great example where something happened and there was a reflection and a realization that led to fundamental changes in how they interacted with each other. They actually changed the approach to how some of their meetings of the C-suite started. As Alicia said, they stopped in the beginning to really do some check-in with each other. And whereas before they wouldn't ever allow themselves the luxury of that because they were always cramming so much work in, they actually said, we have to create some space for this because we don't have those interactions. And then they recognized what an impact that was having on people coming into the organization. So they got very intentional about how they structured more social interactions when people came on board, not just the usual, here's how you log into the network, here are the various things that your team does, here's your schedule and cadence, et cetera. 
That's very interesting, Bob. So what I'm hearing is that leadership in time of crisis can take many forms. One of them can be reviewing how we used to do things and improving on them. So let's talk a little bit more about leadership in crisis. So moments of crisis can offer an opportunity to stand out and shine or to change things for the better. Taking advantage of these opportune professional moments requires the ability to react in real-time environment so that we can get the most out of these opportunities for our career development. So here's my question to you. How can women who do have the necessary knowledge, who do have the necessary skills, get that edge to ensure that their voices are heard when they recognize the opportunities are there? So clearly the periods like that we're in right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of disruption, can have a lot of negative impacts on teams because of the stress of this, but there are also a lot of opportunities to reinvent how teams and organizations work. And as you said, you know, there are these opportunities to really jump in and potentially do something that might be game-changing for a team and organization and as a result for someone's career. We've seen with many of our client organizations that they've seen leadership emerge from for some really unexpected places, oftentimes either from people or from parts of the organization that may not have had the spotlight that they had before. And what's been common about those unexpected emergent leaders has been they were people who saw a need and they saw it wasn't being fulfilled and they stepped into a void to address that. So I don't think it's been solely a question of necessarily having one's voice heard, but actually taking the action to address something that's real and pressing. And typically, if you're able to address a real need for your team by taking action, getting people to be able to do something that adapts and responds positively, it's been a really positive way and it actually brings the spotlight onto someone. One of the most important things though is to recognize that this is a collaborative effort. So we're always counseling people, don't go it alone. We were speaking with a client last week and she was frustrated by something that she was seeing and she felt that she had an idea that would really try to move the needle on it. And our advice to her was, who in the organization can help you? And it turned out when we talked through it, she said, you know what, I have two colleagues on different teams who are having this same issue, but we all work with this same central service organization. The three of them got together and they spent time formulating a solution and moving on it. And so by doing it together, what they were really doing was engaging the help that they had within their own networks. And it's one of the most powerful tools you have at your disposal in an organization. It's the network that you have, it's the trust that you've built that's there. So one way we will often help people think about this is think about what the average person has as their primary sources of influence and power, right? You have your technical expertise. So that's given you a measure of credibility, professional recognition for those skills that you bring to a team. You have your positional authority, right? So it comes from your place that you occupy in the organization's formal hierarchy. But finally, there's this personal or reputational influence that you have. And you've built that through the work that you've done with others. So through the work you've done with others, you have credibility, you've developed a sense of trust, and it helps you move beyond the limitations of things like formal positional power or purely just your technical expertise. 
And what we've seen is with many things is sometimes people over rely on just one source of power, but the most effective leaders rely on all three and the best ones leverage their networks and their allies in these types of things. So again, we come back to this bottom line of don't go it alone. So find someone else to do that because what it's really doing is it's a perfect example of one plus one doesn't equal two. When you have somebody along with you, you actually amplify and support each other. Yeah, and I would just add to that, that this is a particular watch out for women, right? Research actually shows that women are very skilled at building relationships, but where we can sometimes fall short is leveraging relationships. So what Bob said above is critical. Don't go it alone. Consider how can you do more to strategically build relationships, but then take that next step and leverage those relationships. Lisha, what advice can you give when it comes to leveraging relationships? So what I'm hearing from you is that it's not something women generally do well enough. So what can they do to improve? Sure. Well, it's asking for help. So if there's a situation where you know someone can help you, pick up the phone and ask, right? You've built that relationship. Now ask for their support. It's really about having that emotional courage to ask for support. Sometimes also, Matilda, I think that we have found with some of the women leaders that we work with that they often aren't fully aware of how powerful their reputation is within the organization. And we'll encourage them to don't just rely on the networks that you've established with other women where they may be actual friendships as well. They're important, but find those men that you've worked with in the organization too. We're hearing a lot of discussion in the public discourse today about the importance of allyship as it comes to building more inclusive environments in organizations. But one of the things that's really important is that you probably have established a very, very rich and well-regarded reputation if you've been in an organization and you're bringing a high level of technical skill and you're a great performer and you've got that available to you. Don't be shy about using it. Not in a way that is meant to be manipulative or inauthentic, but to really just know, hey, who are some of these folks that I've worked with? Who are these teams that I've worked with where we've been successful? Where have I been an important contributor to something? And how can I tap into that? One of the things that we've found is that sometimes we will work with our coaching clients to say, but have you asked? And as Alicia said, sometimes it's actually just making the ask. And oftentimes we'll find, well, no, I really didn't. Okay, well, let's talk about what kind of question can you ask? What kind of help can you ask for? And do it honestly and authentically. And I'm going to tell you in 90 or 95% of the times, our clients will get back on our next coaching session and they'll say, I asked and I was totally surprised. Not only did they extend the help that I was asking for, but they did something else or they brought other people in. And so sometimes it's actually really stopping to say, who do I have great relationships with and how can I ask them to work with me proactively? Because what we found is in the vast majority of cases, people will almost always respond to a genuine request for help. Thank you very much, Bob and Alicia. On a slightly different topic, let's talk about coping mechanisms. Part of being able to succeed at work, at home, in life, in general, really, is regulating the amplitude of our reactions. So it's never really are we right or wrong. 
in our perception of the situation is how do we ensure that our reaction to that situation is perceived in a manner that is not negative? Or how do we ensure that we are not causing additional stress to ourselves in our way of reacting to a perceived situation? So can you talk to us a little bit about how we can improve, how we cope with different situations, especially in times of change and uncertainty? Sure. So when you're in a time like now where there is a lot of uncertainty and there is a lot of change, that is in and of itself a stressor for us. We as humans, we don't like uncertainty and it creates a number of both physical and emotional stresses for us. And they are, of course, interrelated. And when you also then think that generally as a society, we, for some reason, seem to have place a lot more focus on the things that are wrong or the deficits, as opposed to really trying to understand where are our sources of strength, where are the accomplishments that we can look to. So invariably, we'll have a conversation with a client organization or a leadership team, and we'll ask them a question. They'll be going on and on about oh my gosh, this is wrong and that is wrong and this is a huge problem. And we'll stop them and we'll say, this is a really successful organization and we've been talking for half an hour and you haven't talked to us about one thing that has been done positively or one strength or competitive advantage that you have either with your products or marketplace. I can hear a pin drop. And so we get into this habit of quote, problem solving instead of actually looking at where we've been effective and looking at that as a source of strength to guide us to what we're going to do next, okay? So with that as a backdrop, one of the things that we will then come back to talk about again is like think very clearly about two important relationships. That's a relationship with yourself and a relationship with those around you. And if you start with ourselves, one of the really important things to do is to, again, going back to this recognizing our emotions, being able to name them and to look at how we're feeling physically and mentally. And there are some really basic things that go with that, right? So one of them starts with the fact that we've got huge parts of the adult population that are chronically underslept. It puts you at a really distinct disadvantage for effectively recognizing and regulating your own emotions. A sleep deficit impairs your judgment. It impairs cognition. It puts stresses on your nervous and your endocrine systems. And it's a real challenge to being able to maintain some of that, as you just described, which is to maintain a more balanced response to stressors and triggers, because it makes you more prone to move into a stress response or what's sometimes called a fight or flight response, what we would say, where the limbic system is actually taking precedence over your ability to actually think your cognition. So do what you can to try to address that. There's a whole combination of things, a balanced diet, regular exercise, turning off your devices a couple of hours before bed, maximizing your chances of getting a better night of sleep. We know that there are sometimes things that get in the way of that, but if you could try to keep some degree of consistency to that, it will really, really help you in the long run. Pay attention to your emotional and mental health. You know, if you're an introvert in a day of video conferences has you depleted, try to find some time to be alone to recharge. We know of a client who actually does that. And they've got a whole bunch of creative things that they're doing from basics, like just taking a walk to one client who said, I actually have to take a 15 minute knitting break during the day. Another one said to me yesterday, 
I've been on back-to-back calls all day, but I made this change to my calendar where I never have a 30 or 60 minute meeting, but I instead I default it to 25 minutes or 55 minutes to give myself a five minute break. And I forced myself to either walk around and he said, and I just started doing push-ups between meetings. He said, my kids think I'm crazy, but it's the only way for me to try to get my head back in the space again, right? So you've got to start with yourself as a beginning, but at the team level, and to be thinking about yourself as a member of a team, some of it is the things that we just talked about before, which is being clear about check-ins, right? We know some of this sounds like it's feel-good stuff, but there's some real biology behind this, right? And positive emotional responses occur in our brains. I would ask you to think about when was the last time that potentially your boss or a team that you're a member of where you stopped and said, hey, what has gone well this week? If you think about most team meetings, people are diving in and talking about everything that's gone wrong. But how can you actually step back and say, let's start this meeting and talk about three things that have been successes for the week or three things that we've learned? One of the strategies that we'll often use in workshops is when we're debriefing a segment of a workshop, the questions that we'll ask are focused on thinking about what went well because they usually identify what you're strong at and then thinking about how you use that for the future. So here's two questions that you can bring into your next team meeting or project debrief. What went well and even better if? Ask people to think about it. Let's talk about what went well here because that's usually something that is a real advantage for you. So leverage it. And even better if, what were some things that we could do to make it even better than the outcome that we just received? So I think one of the things that you can do is again, be thinking about yourself, being aware of your physical condition, what your mental and emotional state is, and then to think about how the same things that you're experiencing are also happening with your team. And so that requires you to be communicating with your team frequently, authentically, right? Sharing what you're experiencing and being clear about when you don't have answers can actually have really positive benefits with your team, helping to build trust, right? People then recognize, okay, she's in this in the same kind of position that I am. And so let's just figure out how we work this together and really gets in the way of this, just the facts or very, very mechanical approach that we see some organizations play, especially if they're very numerative, quantitative or scientific in their approach. So as we conclude our podcast together today, Bob and I would like to leave you with a few reflective questions. Think about how has your personal narrative changed? How have you emerged as a leader throughout the adversity? And what accomplishment can you celebrate? This is definitely food for thought. Thank you, Alicia. On this thought-provoking note, I do believe we have reached the end of our podcast. This conversation was very interesting and educational. I know I've learned a lot. I would like to thank Alicia and Bob for joining us again. Women in Securities Finance have benefited a lot from the insights you shared both today and in the past when you were our guest speakers. I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning into another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. We are excited to bring you these podcasts as a way to further educate our members in the global securities finance community, both in terms of business education and also career development. If you have any suggestions for future topics or speakers, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Again, Bob and Alicia, thank you for joining us and thank you for your time. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you, Matilda.